Welcome to the Nothing Is Wasted podcast, conversations designed to help you as you live, learn, and lead through pain. And now the host of the Nothing Is Wasted podcast, Davey Blackburn. Hello, welcome to the Nothing Is Wasted podcast. My name is Davey and joining me, Mel. Mel, we have a great interview today with Chris and Emily Norton. Tell me about it. Oh, man. This guy is probably one of the most inspiring people I've ever met. Did you ever watch Did you ever watch the show Friday Night Lights? No, I've had so many people recommend it, but I've actually never watched it. Oh, I spent a lot of time watching that show because at the time that we moved to Indianapolis, I was coaching football. And so oh. the first episode of that show, if any of you guys are Friday Night Lights lovers, you'll remember Jason Street, who ends up getting injured um, because he made a bad tackle. This guy, Chris Norton, is like the real life version of Jason Street. <laughs> and he, I mean, most inspiring guy I've ever met, I think, because in college, he ends up making a tackle wrong and becomes a quadriplegic. Oh, wow. And so he is bound to a wheelchair and he does keynote speaking all over the place. He and his wife have just, are just about to release this incredible book called The Seven Longest Yards. So in this interview, we actually split it into two parts because it was so rich, so good. So in these interviews, we talk about his uh, handicap and trying to recover from all of that stuff. We talk about depression that both he and his wife had to battle through. Uh, we talk about fostering. Can you believe they also became foster parents? Like this mm. is ultimately inspiring. So you've got to listen. It's going to be such a good interview with them. Wow. That sounds like a great story. Well, before we listen to their story, let's um, continue our mini series. We are mini talking series. about your, yeah, we're talking about your video course, Pain to Purpose. Yeah. And we've been talking about the 10 waypoints. We've been splitting them up uh, before each episode. And today we are going to be talking about Waypoint number seven, which is maximize your development. And I have to be honest, when I hear this, it sounds kind of like school. I don't know. If, what do you what do you mean <laughs> by that? Like school, maybe like boot camp, not really sure. No, actually, Mel, this is perhaps my favorite session. Oh, really? In fact, what was so cool about this is that when we were taking our coaching clients through this in the first iteration, several of them commented, Dave, you can tell this is the one you're most passionate about. And I oh, okay. am because I believe that pain, hardship, adversity, trial can be our greatest classrooms. Mm -hmm. And I, I remember as I was beginning to navigate my own valley of losing Amanda three and a half years ago, I, I had this mindset where I said, I did not want to waste an ounce of this pain, but I was searching for answers everywhere. The thing is, is, is God had my ear. Yeah. I was, I was poised and I was like, I said, God, I want to learn all everything that you're trying to teach me. I don't want to waste an ounce of this. So teach me anything and everything that you want to. And so in this session, I basically break down 10 things that I believe God might be teaching you in your trial. So I would say it's kind of like the spark notes for you. Like we've okay. curated a lot of the content. We've gone, hey, this could be, I don't know, but this could be. And you'll probably pull out three or four things that you're like, yep, that's what God's been teaching me. I haven't been able to put words to it, but that's exactly what I'm feeling. So this one's packed full of, of valuable and helpful truths that will transform your heart and your perspective. Okay. It's interesting that you say that it's like a classroom because I very vividly remember when uh, I was walking through a hard time, my husband was in seminary and um, I've heard that a, a lot of times you cannot get through seminary without a lot of adversity and yes. there's nothing Satan wants more than to It's like get spiritual people. warfare. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so I remember reading uh, a part of my journal to my husband just saying like, this season feels like you are in a classroom physically, mm. but I also feel like I am in a classroom. So wow. um, yeah, I totally get what you're saying here. So yeah. um, waypoint seven, maximize your development. Um, the next waypoint, number eight, is cultivate your community. And it's it's cool because we talk a lot about that on the Nothing is Wasted mm -hmm. podcast, that how valuable community is and how there's so much healing um, alongside community. But would you explain this word cultivate? Yeah, that's that's really good. I, I use the word cultivate intentionally because oftentimes we approach community in, in two different ways or at two different extremes. One is we approach community as a consumer. We say, what can I get out of this community? Mm -hmm. I, I want friends. I want, I don't want to be lonely anymore. I want, I want, I want. And so our 
mindset and community is what can I get out of it? And we've said this before, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says in Life Together that the moment that you approach community seeking to get something out of it, you undo the value of that community and what it could do for you. Mm. And so some people approach it as as consumers. Some people approach it as controllers. They begin to try to manipulate um, relationships. They try to like control the community that's around them. And you can't, you can't control people, although oftentimes we try to. But in order for a community to thrive and for you to thrive in your community and for it to pay dividends for you, not just in valleys, but also on mountaintops, you have to approach it as a cultivator. You got to tend the soil of it. You got to plant water. Over time, those relationships will grow and you will reap a harvest, but it does take some time. And I think this is one of the single greatest things that we can do for ourselves when it comes to how to heal and how to stay healthy in the middle of valleys, because the enemy's greatest ploy is to get us isolated. He, he wants to get us alone and away from people and trick us into thinking that we're the only ones going through what we're going through. Because yeah, if he can sure. get us isolated, then all of a sudden our problems become really big and isolation leads to desolation. It will completely destroy our lives. I mean, you've seen the National Geographic where the one lone wildebeest like wanders away from the watering hole from the rest of the pack and it's right then that boom, the lion snatches him up. And scripture says in 1 Peter 5 that the enemy is prowling around like a roaring lion. And so biblical community, the enemy knows, is the greatest threat to his kingdom. So he's going to do whatever he can to divide us, isolate us, so he can neutralize that threat. I'm so, so excited about this video course. If you are interested in it, you can find it at paintapurposeplan.com. It's going to be released on July 14th, but if you purchase it before then, you can get our pre-order rate, which is $49. But after July 14th, it's going to bump up to $99 unless you are one of our $20 a month partners, um, at which case you can always get it for $49. So that's that's pretty great. Um, you know what I'm excited and- about, Mel? I think I've heard some people say, hey, I want to use this as like small group material too. So maybe you're leading a small group or you're kind of assembling a a small group. This is a perfect, perfect curriculum to walk your small group through because it's not just for people who are like in the middle of these really deep, dark valleys, although it's really geared toward that. This is for anybody, anybody who's ever had any kind of pain in their life and they want to learn how to be healthy in it. So this is great small group material, perfect 11 weeks of small groups. So um, I'm really excited about hearing how this affects not just individuals, but groups of people. Yeah, me too. Me too. Well, I, um, you really got me interested in Chris and Emily's story, and I just can't <laughs> wait to hear part one now. Chris, Emily, great to have you guys on the podcast. Thanks for joining me. Thank you for having yep, us. Thank you, Davey. Okay, so where are you guys located right now? Right now, we're in Port St. Lucie, Florida. Oh, is that home for you? Uh, I mean, now it is. I mean, originally, we're from Iowa. Uh, I was born in Des Moines, Iowa, Emily, Muscatine, Iowa. So we're uh, Midwesterners at heart, but uh, we'll, we'll, we like the accessibility, the flatness, uh, the, the warm <laughs> uh, beaches. So we'll, we'll stay here for a while. You guys oh, made yeah. a really good choice because it's March right now is the time that we're recording this in the Midwest. And you guys know March in the Midwest is the worst. It is. Yeah. Cause it just fluctuates and you're like, okay, is it spring yet? Are you going to no? Okay. Then you get little teasers and you're like, no, we're back to 20 degree weather. Awesome. Thank you. Oh yeah. You get so <laughs> over it at that time. That's for sure. Oh man. Well, you guys have just an incredible story. There's layers and layers and layers of it. I'm so inspired by the two of you and Chris, you and I connected uh, through a mutual friend, just kind of randomly got on a phone call and it just inspired the heck out of me. And so I wanted to make sure that we had you guys on to share this story. And uh, it's probably going to turn into a two-parter because we got a lot to talk about. And so, Chris, I would love for you, man, if you can just kind of take us back. Um, I haven't even prepped anybody on what your story is. It's so powerful. Um, I want you to do, I know that you do a lot of speaking and, and you can share this really well. And so I want you to do the honors of, of telling us what um, what has transpired in your life. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I'll take you back eight years ago as an 18-year-old freshman at Luther College up in Decorah, Iowa. And everything for my first 18 years of life was going according to plan. I was playing more than any freshman on the football team. I was on all the special teams units. And my plan was simple. I was going to become this 
all-American football player, meet the girl of my dreams, get a business degree, and someday make enough money to own my own lake house. <laughs> or better yet, the girl of my dreams family already owns the lake house. Uh, <laughs> big, big dreams as an 18-year-old. And so uh, on October 16, 2010, third quarter, uh, we just scored a touchdown. So I run out to the field uh, for the kickoff. I'm lined up on the right side of the field. The ball's kicked. It's short and right to my side. And all I want to do as a freshman is make an impact. And I want to hit this guy so hard that he's going to drop the ball and just completely change the momentum. So I see this opening forming. I'm sprinting and I hit him at full speed. But I mistimed my jump just by a split second. Mm. Instead of getting my head in front of the ball carry, my head collides right with his legs. And in an instant, I lose all feeling and movement from my neck down. Wow. And I hear the crashes of players above me. Uh, the whistle blows, the pile clears, but I can't. I can't get off the ground. No matter how hard I try, nothing is working. It feels like someone just turned the power off to my body. And I'm just waiting there until my movement, my feeling came back. And um, just not, I did not want that kind of attention. I was hurt. I was injured. I was always a guy that was... I played through injuries or I was a tough guy and I was going to get up and walk off the field, but there was nothing that was working. And I just um, anxiously waited until it would come back because it never crossed my mind that something severe could actually happen to me. I, I thought bad things happen to other people that you read about in the newspaper or yeah. you, you watch on television, but not to me, not from a kid from small town, Iowa. Uh, it, it can happen to me. Wow. Man, when I, you know, when I first heard about this, you and I had a conversation. I'm a huge Friday Night Lights, the show fan. And so immediately, obviously, mm -hmm. thought about Jason Street, the very beginning of Friday Night Lights. But while that's fictional, this is real life. Like this was in a moment, all of your dreams as an 18 year old kid coming crashing down. Um, what, what was going through your mind as you were laying there on the field? And, you know, as those, the other, the other players were kind of pulling themselves off of you and you're not able to move anything. Yeah. At first, you know, I was just calm and patient. I just thought there's again, no way something bad can happen to me. Eventually the athletic trainers came out, they rolled me onto my back. They start asking me questions like, Chris, can you make a fist with your hand? And I try to move my arm and make a fist. Nothing happens. They ask Chris, can you feel touching your legs? And I can't feel a thing. They keep asking these questions over and over, and I, I give the same answer. And then the EMTs come over, and it's the whole time the stadium is completely silent. All the players are down on one knee, mm. and then the EMTs calling for a helicopter. At that point, that's when I felt my world completely crashing. Mm. And at that point, I closed my eyes and I just began to pray. Just God, just please give me the strength to walk off this field. Just let this be a big scare, mm. a big joke. Like, um, the joke's over. Like, let me just get back to my life. Like, this is not how my plan's supposed to go. Like, this is not what I envisioned for myself. And I also closed my eyes, not only just in prayer, but because I could not accept the reality of what was happening. Like, I thought that maybe the only sense of control I could have is by closing my eyes to try to reject my new reality. And eventually, I'm taken uh, on stretcher to the local hospital, to the ambulance and to the local hospital. Then they fly me out uh, to Mayo Clinic. And at the same time, while this is all happening, I start losing my ability to breathe. My injury was so high and severe oh my gosh. that it affected my lungs and breathing. And I'll never forget on the helicopter, I mean, all I could think about was my breathing, whether I'm breathing okay. And I'm, my eyes shoot open as I'm like, feels like I'm drowning. I look over to the EMTs to get their attention and there's nothing I could do to get their attention. Wow. And I'm mouthing to them again, help me, help me. And at that point, I did the only thing that I could do. I just closed my eyes. I just visualized my lungs filling with air, then expelling it out and just count one breath at a time. And I just kept counting and counting. And eventually, I was able to calm myself down and uh, realize that you know I'm going to be okay. Wow. Uh, but I'll never forget that moment too on the helicopter thinking, not only... I just suffered a life-altering injury, but I felt like I was going to die yeah. in that moment. What was that like? I mean, as you're on this helicopter now, you know, your world is coming crashing down. I mean, you're, you feel like you're moments away from, from slipping into eternity. 
what, what, I mean, sorry to repeat the question, but what was going through your mind there, you know? Yeah. I was just thinking, you know, why is this happening? Like, how, how can this be? Uh, this is not supposed to be part of my life. Yeah. I'm just completely scared. And, you know, leading up to that moment of panic, you know, all I could think about was my future. Like, you know, how can I live a life like this? You know, will I ever play sports again? And that was a huge deal to me. That was my identity. And not to have that anymore, you know, what, who would I be? You know, will I ever meet a girl? Will I ever be able to go back to school? Will I have to live with my parents the rest of my life? You know, all these questions were just circling me and just, I was just so, so fearful for the future. Mm. So they, they got you to Mayo Clinic and what did they do? They start running a bunch of tests. They start, I mean, what was the next step of this process? Yeah, they start running a bunch of um, tests and scans, x-rays. I'll never forget my MRI scan. And if you know MRIs, you're loaded onto this flat, uncomfortable table. They um, raise you into this tight tunnel of a room, uh, this machine that makes this loud, like jackhammer sound. And at the same time, you know, I'm in this neck collar and it felt like the neck collar was just biting in the back of my head. Mm. And all I'm thinking and praying for right now at this point, I was like, guy, can I just have a break? Can I just get, can I just sleep? Uh, because you have to lay there completely still for 60 minutes, which laying still was the easy part for me mm. at that time. And uh, I just wanted to escape. And I thought this was going to be the longest 60 minutes of my life. Can I just fall asleep? God, please. And then before I knew it, I was being lowered down out of the MRI machine. I, I had fallen asleep. Mm. I could not believe it was like a, just a small uh, little miracle, a blessing to me. And it kind of let me know that I wasn't alone and that God was there. Uh, Cause I thought for a while that God just left me, you know, what, you know, what's going on. And I just felt um, his presence in that moment. And it gave me a lot of, it gave me the strength that I needed to keep going. Mm. Wow. Were, were you, you know, how, how, um, were you involved with church? Did you grow up with a, with a faith? I mean, how was your family before all of this took place? Or, or is this one of those moments that kind of, kind of brought you to the Lord? How would you describe your faith before? And, and obviously we'll get into some of the nitty gritty of, of after and how it was refined through this, but talk to me a little bit about, about Chris Norton before this accident in terms of your relationship with the Lord. Yeah, before my accident, you know, I had I grew up in a Christian household. Uh, we would attend church forcefully. It wasn't something that I wanted to go to. My faith was always there. We did like fellowship of Christian athletes, um, but it was always kind of a uh, break glass mentality. Um, mm. In case of emergency, you know, I needed God. I would yeah. lean on God. It wasn't something at the forefront of you know my everyday life. And so it was always on the back burner. And after this experience, it brought, you know, God to the forefront um, where I was thankful and, and brought God into everything that I did versus just when I needed him the most. And thankfully, I had that, you know, background of faith um, to really rely on in that darkest moment. And I realized just how important your faith is when everything is taken away from you. You have no one to rely on. but God himself. Mm. Well, you know, I could kind of, I could hear, I can hear it in your voice, even in the, when you're talking about being in the MRI, MRI and, and just recognizing these small things as like falling asleep as a little, we call it sometimes hug from God, you know, like a little miracle that's a, that's like God's in the details of this. Um, you know, many people would not be responding in that way. Many people would be in that moment going, okay, God is completely the furthest away he could possibly be from me right now. He's abandoned me. He's left me, you know, and kind of slip into, I would imagine if I, I mean, I can't imagine being in that situation, but I can imagine probably I would, I would be like, okay, can you just leave me here to die? I don't know if I can move forward. And yet I, he I hear just these little glimmers of hope in your, your voice even now, as you recall back to laying on that MRI table, um, I imagine you probably waffled with that back and forth quite a bit over the next several weeks and months. Talk to me a little bit about the, 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 the next step in that process as you're in Mayo Clinic. When, when was it that you realized like for good, for good, this was changing your life forever? Yeah. So, I mean, I had surgery that night on October 16th. I wake up on October 17th, 2010. I felt like you know, I just 
woke up from my worst nightmare. Then the surgeon comes in and my nightmare becomes my reality as the surgeon tells me I have a 3% chance to ever regain any feeling or movement back below the neck. And I'm just stunned. I'm just floored. And I don't know what it was, but something in me was just said, no way, not me. No way, not me. I'm not going to accept this. I will not be the 97% that doesn't Mm. recover from this. I will do whatever it takes to be that 3%. And so I went to work. Um, And during the day, you know, I had great distractions with family, friends. Uh, I was really committed to my physical therapy, my occupational therapy to help me get my movement back. But when it came nighttime, that's when my doubts hit me full force. Mm. That's when I really lost hope. And I just wondered, is it even worth to keep going? Like, is is it worth the time and effort to keep fighting? And um, the big change of momentum for me happened on the fourth night of my ICU stay in the hospital. You know, I'm laying there about 3 a.m. You know, most nights I cry myself to sleep, uh, mm. just thinking about the future and just, is it worth it? And then the physician comes in to check my vitals, which is typical. Someone always checks my vitals every two hours, then they leave. But this physician does something different. She comes over to my bedside. She gets down on one knee and she says, Chris, look me in the eyes. And she was kind of mean about it. <laughs> and so I lock eyes with her and she's this short, slender woman, short, reddish hair, glasses. And she had this voice that sounded like she came straight out of a Western movie. And she <laughs> says, my name is Georgia. I'm from Wyoming. Do you know anyone from Wyoming? <laughs> I say no. And I'm thinking, where is this going? Then she says, well, people from Wyoming don't tell lies. And I want you to know, you will beat this. Mm. You will beat this. Wow. I instantly broke down crying. I needed to hear those words Mm. so badly. I was in such a vulnerable state. And to hear like her, her to say, you will beat this, not just you can beat this, that you will. And it gave me complete faith and confidence to keep going. And I discovered just how impactful, you know, your words can be. And after that moment, I hear those words of you will beat this every single day. And I hang on to that hope and I keep fighting. Wow. That's incredible. You know, I I love what you said there that during the day you were distracted, you had your friends, you, you were busy, but it was at night when you were alone. And when you were trying to quiet your thoughts and go to sleep that you felt the most despondent and, and, and doubting the most. And I think that what a, what a, a perfect picture for many of us in our trials, you know, I feel like during the quote unquote day when, when things seem to be, you know, sun's out a little bit more hopeful or we can distract ourselves from things. We're like, okay, we either just totally dismiss what's going on or we, we don't really pay attention to the full gravity of what has just happened to us, but it's at night when you're, when you're by yourself, and I'm speaking metaphorically, of course, at night, but in the dark seasons of our life that we begin to doubt. And I just had a phrase pop into my head. I'm sure you've heard this before, the, just the idea of don't doubt in the dark what God has showed you in the light, right? Yeah, so here's this, here's this like angel from Wyoming. Who knew the angels lived in Wyoming, right? Here's this angel <laughs> yeah. from Wyoming... <laughs> That comes and whispers this hope into your ear. What a beautiful um, intervention yeah. from the Lord right there. What were, those, what were those times like as you're wrestling through this with the Lord? You know, how, how would you say maybe your faith deepened or, or, or how did it grow in these moments as you were wrestling through this? Yeah, I mean, it, it was a wrestling match. It was just like trying to figure out God's plan for myself. Like I just would beg God, like, God, can you just give me like a little bit of a glimpse Mm. into the future? What, what is your plan? Can I just, if I could just see a glimpse that would just help my present situation so much more. Uh, If I could just know exactly how this is all going to come together. Cause I did believe that I did believe that somehow God could use, um, you know, my pain into a purpose, but what would that be? And if I could just see that, that could help my suffering right now. But I mean, as, as you know, like, uh, that's just, that's part of faith. Yeah. You know, it's a part of believing and trusting. And that's where you have to keep going, even if you don't know where you're mm. going uh, and just take put one step in front of the other. And so there was a lot of, uh, of that back and forth of just, come on, God, can I please just see what, what's going on? Like, why, why is this happening? I, I do trust you. 
Um, but it, I just want to see something that could help me so much uh, in that dark period. Yeah. You know, sometimes like you see, I mean, I think we've all probably seen movies where it depicts similar to something that you, you know, you're walking through here where you've got someone who's on the road back to recovery from, you know, and having to do physical therapy and stuff. And, and it, and it seems like in the, in the stories or in the movies that, you know, you have the inspirational music behind it. You've got this like slow, gradual, and yet up into the right type experience. If you were like drawing a graph of your experience in trying to work through the physical therapy of all of this over the next several months, would that graph have looked like up and to the right? Was it like, oh, every day we're like making progress. Here we go. Is it inspiring? Or what is that? What, what were those, exp- what were those highs and lows like over the next several months as you're, I mean, you're applying yourself, you're the, you're an athlete. So you're putting in the work, you know, you're not slacking on the physical therapy, but I imagine there were probably ups and there were probably downs. Describe some of those ups and downs for me. You know, I was uh, pretty fortunate where it was a pretty slow, like a very slow, but at least steady up and climb to the right, mm-hmm. uh, where it was gradual and you just had to celebrate so uh, profusely those small victories, mm-hmm. like the smallest things you had to celebrate. Um, so if it was being able to feel my chest, like a touch or feeling able to be able to feel my toes, whatever it may be to uh, be able to move my left arm, like you had to just celebrate those and just be caught up, you know, in that present moment. Because one of the biggest challenges that I had was I'll never forget. Um, I'm in occupational therapy. Um, I'm working on my left arm curling up to my shoulder, and I'd just been able to curl my left arm to my shoulder, a huge victory. And then my occupational therapist grabs a half pound weight, like an ankle weight, velcros it around my wrist, and I'm. Now I'm with my family and I'm struggling. My arm's shaking as I'm lifting this half pound weight and I get it to my shoulder. Everyone starts celebrating. I'm celebrating. And then it hits me. Just a month ago, I was able to curl 30, 35 pounds. Yeah. Now I'm celebrating a half pound weight wow. to curl it to my shoulder. And in that moment, I took away all the joy and happiness, that celebration mm. by going back to the past and what was once like before. And that, that hurt. That hurt a lot. And it really forced me to, in order for myself to stay motivated and positive, I had to just grieve my past. I had to grieve who I was Mm. as an athlete and like slowly let that go and just get caught up with the present time of just where I'm at now. And that, and to view that half pound curl as a victory. Uh, which was hard wow. uh, to not let yourself go back there, but just to think of those little things as a blessing and to use that as encouragement and motivation to move forward. Wow, man! So you were a freshman in college when this happened, right? Correct. So you've got then the next four or so years that you're having to not only tr- try to, I mean, literally put your life back together in terms of just being able to operate all the things that we take for granted, you know, um, getting up, brushing your teeth, washing your hair, like all of that stuff that we take, not only having to do that and figure out how to do that again, but also work in your undergrad. Talk to me about what, what was that like as your, I mean, how were you, how did your studies go? Did it, did it alter anything? What was that, what was that journey like over the next three or four years? Yeah. So nine months later, I was able to return to campus and that was really done so because of my older sister, Alex, she's a nurse. She lived off campus, like an apartment to help with the transition. And then on top of that, I had five teammates, um, 19 year old guys who I've only known for eight weeks who lived with me in an apartment on campus that all of them together acted as like full-time caregivers. Wow. And so I had one guy who would help me get up in the morning. Uh, one guy would help me get my books and get me to class. Another person would help me at the cafeteria. Another person drive me to physical therapy and you know the list went on and on because I was dependent on everything like I I need help with everything like there was so little um, that I could actually do but I was able to do college and do classes uh, because of support like that I did everything all my class work on an iPad um, so it's like touch and I remember trying to type my first paper all I could use was uh, my left arm and the side of my left pinky just one key 
at a time to type these papers. And I remember my shoulder just being so, so sore and so painful those first couple of months, just trying to do my homework and it taking, you know, 10 times as long as I knew it could. And that was frustrating. But again, I had to just embrace what was now and just work through it because feeling sorry for myself, complaining, uh, wasn't going to get me anywhere. And so I just had to take a lot of uh, mental discipline to just mm. to stay present. And I knew how important it was to get a degree. And so I just kept working. And then eventually, too, my, my left arm got stronger from doing this. My right arm got stronger. I had great teachers, professors uh, that would work with me, send everything by PDF because I couldn't do anything with a pen or pencil. I couldn't do any writing. And so it was all like voice dictation and uh, marking up on a PDF on an iPad. So um, while also you know, putting in hours and hours of physical therapy and occupational therapy a day uh, to also work on my recovery. Man, bro, I love what you just said as far as, I, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't just like throw myself a pity party. And there's so many people today. I mean, Facebook has become like a journal for pity parties, right? Everyone kind of <laughs> yeah. plasters all of their problems on Facebook and trying to gain some kind of sympathy or pity because it's just, you know, it's, it feels better sometimes to just wallow in our pain mm -hmm. and, and garner pity from people. But, you know, you're telling me that this pity would not have done anything for you in this situation. How important is it for people to, to switch over from that pity party to, to this, like, I mean, one, it's a whole, you know, Holy Spirit empowered thing that you're doing, but this positive stay focused on the future type thinking, how important is that? Yeah. I mean, First and foremost, I mean, we're all human. Uh, you're going to have your moments of where you throw yourself a pity party. Like you're going to feel frustrated and emotional and, and angry uh, with what's going on. Mm -hmm. But then it's to make that as short as possible and then use that as a springboard mm -hmm. to drive you forward and to take action. That's good. And that's what I've thankfully have been able to do um, throughout the last eight years. And I mean, even my whole life, it's kind of helped set me up for this is that, you know, using that as the driving force and motivation to take action, to change is that frustration and that pity. And just to not let yourself stay there for too long and just, again, use that as a springboard to push you forward as yeah. what I've just I've tried to do over and over again. Yeah. It's crazy. You had all of these guys in college that were coming around you and helping you out. What, an, what a beautiful picture. Of, I mean, I just, I pictured the, the man on the mat that, you know, they bored the mm -hmm. hole through the roof to, to lower him to Jesus. That's just what I had in my, in my mind. But I'm curious, did, did that season teach you anything about just solid friendships and loyalty and biblical community? And, and talk to me a little bit about the, the insights that you, you kind of learned from that experience, having to depend on these guys. Yeah, well, first off, when you have to depend on someone, uh, you grow this more of this intimate connection mm. with someone. It's no different than your relationship uh, with God and Jesus Christ. The more you depend on them, the more of an intimate relationship you have. So I would say that it strengthened um, my relationship being so dependent and so vulnerable uh, with a bunch of guys. So it, it really helped strengthen our relationships. And it also helped me too uh, of learning how to communicate and how to get the most help possible because at first you know I would have these situations where I felt like people should have helped me because I couldn't do it myself like well of course you know can you fill up my water bottle I can't fill up my water bottle myself mm. so I just ask it just like really not necessarily meanly but just like expectant and I found that wasn't the most effective way to communicate your needs or to inspire people to want to actually help you out mm. um, when you're constantly asking them of so much and that it really helped me then realize you know if for everything that I do everything that I ask no matter how much I need it or depend on it I need to be grateful wow. I need to be loving and caring in the way I communicate that and also show appreciation so it really taught me a lot about appreciating others and being ex just extremely humble and grateful and not expecting it and um, demanding too. Um, so uh, I'm very thankful to have a lot of selfless friends and people who you, you really know who your friends are too. Mm. Uh, the ones that are willing to go out of their way to help you. Cause I, it did kind of draw a line for me of like, who are my real friends and who are just there for the, the best parts and for the perks. Yeah. Um, you know, the friend who was willing to 
put in the extra step to help me get ready for me to go out to eat versus the friend who would just want to meet you there versus picking you up and getting you ready. Uh, you know, little things like that, uh, you really saw a kind of a, a line of who's really there for you. I want to take a quick break from this amazing conversation with Chris and Emily to make sure you know about who we had a conversation with for our bonus episode this month. The Brookers, Daniel and Brittany are back for a special quick episode available exclusively to our monthly partners. In this episode, we tackle the topics of parenting and blending families. So if you or someone you know is working on parenting in stressful situations or blending a family, you won't want to miss this episode. You can head over to nothingiswasted.com slash partners and sign up to make a monthly tax-deductible donation of $5 or more to access this and all the other bonus episodes we have. Before we dive back into our interview, listen now to a short clip from my conversation with the Brookers, and don't forget to visit nothingiswasted.com slash partners to sign up to become a monthly partner. us, I think the biggest challenge was building that foundation of mm. our marriage with five small children yeah. and also building the foundation for our kids and the security that we are a family, that God has brought us together mm. and we are secure together. Mm. Um, that it's not all these other people plus us a family, like we are the family inside this home and this is enough. Mm. And so I think for us, one of the big things that we had to really pray through and work through is how we could give security to our kids to know that we're not gonna leave. Well, Emily, we haven't heard anything from you yet. And I'm curious, you know, in this whole timeline, where did you come into the story? So it was a few years after Chris's injury that we met on a dating app. And okay. um, now were you yes, guys in college at the time? Was this still in college? Okay. Yeah, this was still in college. So I was going to college three hours away, but still in Iowa. Um, at, and Chris was up at Luther. So okay. we started talking and um, was I was just very drawn to him. Uh, I've always had this passion for wanting to help others. Mm. And I saw that he was using what he went through to help other people, um, which I really liked that a lot. Um, so out of the gate, Chris, you didn't like hide the fact that you were, it wasn't like, you know, dating apps. So I'm kind of concealing this, like out of the gate, you tell her, Hey, this is what you're, this is what you're getting with me. Kind of. <laughs> I stopped him on the internet, Okay. Okay. Yeah. Tell me about this. This is I great. I figured it out before he told me. <laughs> Because yeah. um, he had his link for his foundation yeah. on the app. So I was like, oh, okay. what's this? So I clicked on it and then I started watching YouTube videos and I figured out all about his story, um, which is really actually weird because I remembered hearing about the story mm. when I was a senior in high school. And I like specifically had this moment where I was just on the computer and I saw this video on social media and I was crying. Because I thought like it was just so awful that this happened. Had no idea who Chris was at all. But when I met him and heard the story, I was like, I've heard this before. So that was kind of crazy. Wow. But I feel like everything's connected. So it wasn't surprising um, because God just had a plan and that's what it was. Wow. So as you're like, you know, you guys are talking back and forth on this um, this dating app, um, I'm sure there's some obvious things that really uh, drew you to him. I mean, he's a good looking dude. But what what were the what were the qualities that like really drew you to him, drew you guys together? How did this dating process go for you guys? Yeah, so um, I would say his work ethic was big. Um, his faith in God was really important to me. Um, I really wanted to find somebody. My last relationship that wasn't really a big focus, like that wasn't at the forefront, and I really wanted to find somebody that would put their faith first. And, um, I saw how Chris handled such a life altering moment and didn't let it ruin him, but he used it to give back and make himself better and then help people around him. And I knew I had a very good childhood growing up and didn't deal with anything difficult. Um, and so just seeing that he was able to handle something so difficult, cause I knew in life we would have many challenges. Yeah. 
that was, I was really drawn to that because I wanted to have someone who was really strong and able to get through hard moments. Um, and just, yeah, I mean, he was a good listener and really just a hard worker. And then yeah. obviously like his passion for just helping others, extremely drawn to him for that. Mm. Yeah. Another thing too, I would add into that is uh, really drew me to Emily was uh, just like when you don't actually see someone in person, she was very inquisitive and she asked the hard questions that made you more vulnerable. And I think when you can get to a more vulnerable level with someone, it deepens that relationship and that connection with person with that person. And so she didn't ask like the surface level questions yeah. that most people ask. And also people are usually scared to ask me the deeper questions yeah. and you know, especially just meeting someone. And, and Emily went right for it. So I remember, never forget her asking, <laughs> what was it like the first day waking up after surgery? It's like, whoa, like, mm. I mean, I don't mind answering that. I appreciated that she wanted to know like my struggles and like those vulnerable moments because I, I felt more comfortable with her like having to share that yeah. and being asked prompt to that. But um, most people would never go there. They, they were, you know, too scared. Maybe they yeah. defend me which they wouldn't offend me. But um, so some Emily is someone that really goes deep in a hurry. And I mean, that's why she's able to connect with so many people the yeah. way she does. I just love getting to know people. And um, I honestly, when I figured out about his injury, I was even more interested because I was just so curious about how he handled it. And um, I love trying to learn from people and just really get to know who people are. Um, so yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, you know, you guys just highlighted something that's so important. I think I think pain really enhances empathy, especially if 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 both of you guys in a relationship have walked through some pain. But it sounds like you're no matter what maybe your past was like, Emily, you're a very empathetic person in general. I mean, to go straight to the heart of some of those questions and be able to ask, you know, and kind of dig out some of the real raw stuff from Chris out of the gate. That's, that's incredible. And so pain will, will enhance empathy, but it also, it also enhances intimacy. You know, as, as you guys have noticed that when, when, when two people have walked through some difficult things, Christy and I realized this as we began dating, you know, we're sitting at a Chick-fil-A and we put our cards out on the table. We both share stories of our own pain and we're like, wait a minute, you get me. And you don't, you don't waste time with the surface stuff after you've walked through some pain. You don't waste time with the things that most people are wasting time with. I remember several months into our relationship, I didn't even know what her favorite color was, you know, because we weren't, we weren't talking about that. We were talking about the real stuff, the stuff that really is going to be the building blocks for a great relationship. And, and I just wonder if, you know, there's a listener that's going, going through something right now with their spouse or with a significant other, and they're wondering, why is this going on? And recently we've wondered it's some of the most recent difficult things that we've walked through the, together, if purely the purpose behind that is just to bring us together and forge a, a greater intimacy between the two of us. And, and I can see it coming through the screen right now as I'm watching you guys. And of course, we're going to talk w- way more about several of the challenges that you guys have faced over the course of the past few years. But you can tell that you guys are like your best friends. And this has yeah. been forged through the fire. It's so cool to see. It's so cool to see. Um, Definitely. I, I'm curious, Emily, because I, I have to imagine, and maybe this maybe this wasn't the case, but I have to imagine there were some doubts in your own mind, or maybe even some well-meaning people in your life that were like, "Hey, are you sure about this? Do you know what you're getting yourself into?" Like, oh yeah. I mean, there's some. <laughs> talk to me a little bit about that, if you if you can, as you you know, as you're okay, able to. Yeah. No, I mean, my family are very great people, but I mean, obviously, like you said, like as a parent, mm-hmm. um, there was some, uh, many different fears that my parents had. Um, I'm just like very, like, I just have this natural thing to like go up for who people are. And yeah. I wasn't, I didn't understand it. I, I mean, my grandma used a wheelchair to get around. She could still walk. I had never met anybody who was like wheelchair bound and yeah. needed that. And I didn't know what it was going to look like. So honestly, like for a while, I really like didn't like think about those fears, but my parents did. And so when I first told my parents about it, my dad is like, he knows you're just going to be friends, right? Like you just want to meet to be friends. (laughs) Yeah, dad. (laughs) But I mean, obviously they got to know Chris um, and you know, they loved him as much as I do as well, but there were many fears of what that was going to look like um, with me having to take care of him and his needs and um, just how that was going to look. And I also, I have this, I've always just, I like, I love helping people. 
And that was another major fear of like my family was, Mm. are you getting into this relationship just to try to help him? Mm. And I kept telling him like, listen, he's got it together more than I do. Like his mindset is way better than me. Yeah. He needs like help with his physical needs, but like with his mindset, his perspective on life, like he's got it more together than me. So I think he's going to help me with more of my mindset. And it's not about like, I'm not trying to help or fix him. Um, but it was definitely, there are definitely fears with it. Wow. What were some of the surprises? Was there anything that you like, as you're stepping in, you're like, whoa, okay. I didn't see, okay. I didn't see this coming. This is going to be a challenge that maybe caused you to, I don't want to say rethink, but caused you to consider deeper, you know, what you were doing. Um, I would say, so the, the first night that we met, and um, Chris was trying to get me to come over to his friend's house. I have no idea who he is or any of his friends. I'm like, there's no way I'm going to his house. Like, are you kidding me? No way. And so I'm like, well, what if I just like come pick you up in my car and we can go out for lunch or something? And he's like, he like totally did not like, it was super naive of me. Cause I didn't understand yeah. like he'd have a ramp in a, in a van right. and he'd have to use a ramp to get in the car and his chair wouldn't fold apart and put in my little yellow cobalt car <laughs> in the back of the car. Like it wasn't going to work. So I was extremely naive to it at first. Um, so there's like moments where like, I just had no idea how it would work. I don't know. I'm trying to think, I don't know if there were necessarily like moments where I really, questioned it um there were moments where it was harder where there was like more planning that we had to go into mm-hmm. um but there's such like an instant connection that mm-hmm. i don't think like i really went down that path much i would say more once we were like in a deeper relationship i started like questioning how are we going to have like be able to take care of kids yeah. when so much is going to be on my plate um so then there's some fears with that later, later on. Right. Uh, but I knew he would make it work because we always made everything work. Wow. Chris, what about you? Did you have any, like, you know, prior to meeting Emily, especially, did you have doubts and fears about, I'm sure you had to have like, okay, am I going to have a, a meaningful relationship with somebody one day because of this injury or like what, what's going to happen with my, you know, uh, with, with marriage and, and, and having a family and what, what kinds of wrestlings did you have with that? I did. I had a, a fear of whether I'd meet that one person and fall in love uh, with the person that really makes me like come alive. And I just had no idea whether that would come about. And also, would they be willing for the challenge mm-hmm. of doing everything uh, my way? Which, when I say my way, I mean like, um, you know, there's you have to go through the back door because that's where the back, the, the mm-hmm. ramp is for the back door. Um, you have to take the elevator versus taking these three steps up to this room. And um, it's going to take a little bit longer to get ready or to get up in the morning. Go to, you know, There's all these little extra add-ons that come with being in a wheelchair and with the accessibility. And uh, I need a lot of help. So will that person be willing to take that journey with me and still love me and care about me? And also the, on the flip side too, there's some people that were drawn to me because of my inspirational story and they wanted to be my friend mm-hmm. but they just wanted to be friends i didn't want it, all the other add-ons so right. um it was trying to figure out whether i'd find that one person who would yeah be able to take everything on it and still love me unconditionally be independent and be willing to accept all that and emily was that person where she's such an independent strong smart beautiful woman that can take on a lot and we were just a, a perfect match um, for that, man, what was that like when you began to realize that she, you know, she was willing to step into this, like, you know, I mean, how'd that make you feel? Well, I mean, it makes me feel, uh, incredibly blessed because I always feel like a, a burden. Like mm. I, I, that's my, my worst fear is to feel like I'm burdening someone yeah. by helping, by them helping me. Um, cause I mean, I want to do things on my own. I want right. I don't want to ask for help. I don't want someone else to do things for me. Now I've accepted and I'm content with that's just the reality of it. But I, I hate when someone has to help me and it just, you can see the, the, the disappointment, not necessarily disappointment, but their, their annoyance, their frustration mm-hmm. or the inconvenience that causes on them. Yeah. And yeah. so, um, the way that Emily made me feel when I, I did needed help and she was willing to ask me if I needed help before I even asked her wow. um, just really drew me closer to her. And then there was things like too, like that I'm really 
um, uh, self-conscious about is like I have a urinary leg bag, which basically I have like a tube that's connected to my bladder and it drains into this pretty much this portable urinal on the side of my leg and I hate it. Like I don't, I don't want, um, you know, pee in this bag that I always have to cover up and have to empty out. So it's like one of my biggest fears too. What if Emily, when she finds out about it, Mm. you know, is that going to freak her out, have her running the other way or, uh, you know, things like that. So I had all these different fears and insecurities running about me. Like, you know, how much do I show her at first to, right before I scare her away? Right. And so, um, but Emily just didn't care about like any of it. It just didn't even seem to phase her. And um, it's just made her even more and more special. And on top of that, she was beautiful. So that helps. <laughs> <laughs> and on top of that, she was beautiful. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, when I first saw her, I mean, I was like... <laughs> I'm pretty sure like, I had an out-of-body experience as she was like, crossing the street <laughs> to meet me for the first time. And my jaw was probably like hanging down. And I was like <laughs> way out of my league. Like, pull it together, Chris. Like, keep it together. Um, don't let her know. Um, but no, she uh, just looked right at my eyes, didn't look at my hands, didn't look at my wow. legs, and just saw me for me. Wow. That's awesome, man. Okay, so you're still, you know, having on this on this like – road to quote unquote recovery over the the course of your, you know, college experience. And you had this, this dream, um, when you finished college that you wanted to be able to walk, walk Mm -hmm. across the stage and get your diploma. Right. And did you, did you, did you talk about this dream out loud? Did you, I mean, what was, what was some of that like, process like did you tell people were there skeptics were there doubters what were the doctors saying yeah i mean the to kind of go back to when i first was hurt i'll never forget about five weeks after my injury when all i'm praying for all i'm working for is to move something in my legs Mm. that's all i wanted and i felt this new sensation on my left big toe i didn't know what it meant but it felt like something special was happening and then the I couldn't wait for the doctor to come in. The doctor comes in. I share the news about my left big toe. And he says that, you know, I'm experiencing a phantom feeling that I want to believe that I can feel something different in my toes so badly. I tricked myself into thinking it was real. Mm. And then the last thing he says to me is, Chris, you'll never move anything in your legs ever again. And I was crushed. I was, you know, everything I've been working so hard for now felt impossible. And thankfully, you know, I, I went back to the Georgia of you will beat this. And I set out to prove him wrong. And a week later, I wiggled that exact left big toe. Wow. Uh, and I was, I was so pumped. I was fired up. I, I now call him Dr. Phantom. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, through that toe wiggle, it grew to be so much more. And it just kept giving me the confidence to set bigger goals. And so that goal was then I got to walk across the stage in my college graduation. Wow. And I didn't know, you know how I was going to do it. And I was pretty private about it because, you know, there's a vulnerability to sharing a a goal or a dream of yours that might not come true. And so I kept it kind of to myself and I started to slowly uh, share it. And then Emily came along. I shared my goal with her and she helped me um, give that goal a voice and that it could be used to inspire someone else to set a goal. And so then she came alongside and not only just came alongside to help me voice this goal, but she helped me with my training. Uh, she was like my most intense trainer out of anyone. <laughs> she, she's a little drill sergeant at heart. I can just imagine. And, see the fire yeah. in your eyes right now, Emily. You're like, dang straight. Yeah. I'm going to put him yeah. straight on this one. Let's go. Come on. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. So she came alongside and just really helped push me and get me to another level and set my heights uh, for something big. And uh, thankfully, uh, you know, she helped me find this new trainer at the Barwis Methods and that's mm. really intensive based training and I uh, committed myself to that for, you know, four or five months uh, before my actual walk. And then uh, the day before this actual, the graduation walk, I proposed to Emily. Uh, I surprised her and uh, it was uh, a beautiful it's moment. Crazy. Yeah, I, I planned <laughs> a lot. Yeah, putting that all in one That weekend. is amazing. <laughs> Hey, why not? You know, go big or go know, home. Right? I mean, that's definitely we're going to remember that weekend forever. Yeah, you it would have been really because she was going to walk with me across the stage, so it would have been really awkward if she would have said no. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> but it worked oh. out great. You don't seem to me, Chris, to be the underachieving type. 
by any means. So, <laughs> so why not put it all in a weekend? So you pop the question and then you're, then you're supposed to go and walk, do this incredible feat that doctor said you would never do and walk across the stage. Mm-hmm. Tell me about it. Yeah. So, I mean, something it's like, I felt like an Olympic athlete in a way, just where you know, Olympic athletes are training, you know, four years for this one moment. And mm. that's what it took it was over four years for this one moment to walk literally four yards. And, uh, I was so nervous. I was so scared. Um, I just wanted to go well. I just wanted to really too, like show people like, you know what? I worked really hard for this. Like I, I really did put a lot of time in it and I just hope people could, could see that, like how hard, you know, I did work for it and hopefully that it would inspire them to do the same. And like, I just didn't wake up one morning and decide, Hey, I'm going to walk across the stage. Like this has been in the works. And so, um, for me to, to get up, I stood up, we started taking steps and right away, you know, well, okay, before this, I was nervous that I was going to get like booed off the stage. I was going to hold up mm. graduation. So if you've been to a graduation, you know how long oh, yeah. those things can dry. Yeah. I can get hot, <laughs> sweaty. People are irritated. And I'm thinking people are going to be so mad that I'm taking like an extra, you know, five minutes to get across the stage when mm. people want to get out of there and uh, get cooled off or whatever it may be. And so I had that fear in my mind. But as soon as I get up, the crowd just erupts wow. into a cheer. And I'm taking steps. And as an athlete, you know, I've always been able to kind of tune out the crowd. But like this time, I, I couldn't help but like yeah. it's, it came in such a shock. And it was, it was so powerful that you couldn't help but notice it. Wow. And then when I get to the end and I look out, everyone's bawling their eyes. Everyone's hmm. crying. And I just I was stunned by just how much it meant to people. And uh, it was just a beautiful moment to also share with Emily and to also the kind of the sense of, of relaxation, a little bit relief at the end of just like, you know, I did it. Uh, I was able, we were able to do it. And by the grace Man. of God. And, and then, it, then after that, though, that video just took off and went, yeah. and went viral. And it just went all across the world. 300 million views. Wow. So someone had a camera on it and they took a video of it. You guys put it on YouTube or something. And it just took off. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was crazy. We never experienced anything like that. That's insane. I know you guys got several invites from there into different talk shows and stuff like that. Tell me about, you know, what what who who where did you what appearances did you make? What was the I mean, what was that like just to all of a sudden just be like, wow, not only do we have this, you know, my my college class right here that's cheering us on, but to feel like the nation is cheering you on as well. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I had a friend of mine like videotape it. Yeah. And then he put it to us together and we put it on YouTube. And then it just really picked up a lot. And then all of a sudden I get a call or a voicemail from a producer at Fox and Friends. And I was like, whoa, like they want us in the studio tomorrow morning. Um, for a <laughs> Don't you love her? They're like, like today, now. You're yeah. Like, um, so like, whoa, like I don't move too quickly. Crazy. I hope you don't. <laughs> <laughs> so then, yeah, there's like a local studio where they live cast us in, and we, Em and I, were so we were nervous. Terrified. Wow. Yeah. We were, I, Chris had done interviews before. I had never like I did one little local station about the walk or something, and that's it. So I was terrified. Like it was so scary. And then, <laughs> then the worst part too was like when you're live casting. <laughs> you're looking at a camera and you're listening through a yeah. earpiece. Yeah. Yeah. So like you're just staring in this black camera <laughs> and on live TV and you have to answer the questions through your earbud. And it was just a really weird experience. And I mean, we survived it, but then we go to a local brunch and then we look up and on CNN, they're playing our video. Mm. And then we're getting these emails and calls and texts from all these different producers and newscasts. Uh, and then, we did a couple more interviews and we thought it was over. And then I wake up the next morning, like 7.30 a.m. And it was NBC Nightly News. And I called them back and they said, hey, can we come over in a couple hours wow. to do an interview in your living room? Uh, I'm like, yeah, sure. Like, that sounds, that sounds great. But they moved so fast. Yeah. And then the same thing happened with Good Morning America. Then that, later that evening, we get a call from them like, hey, can you be in New York City tomorrow morning? <laughs> We're like, yeah, we'll try it. Let's do it. And um, uh, we were able to make that work, red-eye flight and everything. But it wow. was really special to be able to just share you know, our story and give people hope and inspiration yeah. that no matter what you're going through, just, just choose hope, hold on to your faith, take 
one step in front of the other because you don't know what's going to happen. The possibilities are endless when you just keep going. Yeah, it was amazing to see the responses and comments we were getting from people. People were like opening up about their life stories, these terrible things that had happened, and they were finding hope through Chris's walk and just his injury. Um, So that was amazing to see just people are saying like, I now believe in love again. Like they have given up on love and they believed in love because of Chris and our story. So that was just, you just can tell like what can come from pain and God will take that and turn it into the most amazing purpose. And we had no idea (laughs) moving to another town, working so hard for the graduation walk, that he was going to use that the way he did. Um, and that millions of people are going to see it and that the impact it was going to make. Um, but it definitely then inspired us to want to do more to help spread that hope for other people. Right. So you know how at graduations, they always tell you like, save your applause to the very end. I'm sure that they did not mind <laughs> whatsoever the efficiency of this, that people were erupting for yeah, you. Yeah, I know. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. That's so great. No, it was amazing. That moment, honestly, was one of my favorite moments of my life. Like so much energy. That was an incredible moment. Man. It was. It was yeah. crazy. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, you wrote, you, you, from there, you have written a book, Chris, and it's called The Seven Longest Yards. So what were the seven yards? How, how did that correspond with all of this? Yeah, so The Seven Longest Yards came from our next big goal, which after the graduation walk and us being engaged, the next goal was that I'm going to walk Emily down the aisle of her wedding and that we were going to walk seven yards, which would also um, mark seven years since my injury and seven num- being the perfect number, whole spiritual number. And in uh, the seven longest yards, though, was really everything leading up to that wedding mm-hmm. walk and all the trials and tribulations that, that I didn't just face, but what Emily faced and what we faced together. And so that's where in this book that we're sharing, uh, that we're coming out with, you know, it's our love story, our own perspectives, but also uh, a lot of the trials. Because I think it's easy to look at our story. You see this graduation walk. Uh, you see, you know, our wedding walk, which also went viral uh, years later, was that there's a lot of struggle. A lot of times we ask ourselves, is it worth it? Should we keep going? And uh, we mm-hmm. kept making that choice to keep going. So it's really sharing our struggles and uh, that decision to keep moving forward in the face of the impossible. Wow. Okay. So here's what I want to do because we're out of time for this episode. You just referenced all these struggles and trials that you two have gone through together. And <laughs> I want to talk some more about that in a part two of this interview, because then some of the things that you guys have done to start your family and the challenges that you're taking on is just again, all inspiring. So we're going to come back for part two of this interview and so make sure listeners to join us for part two of my interview with chris and emily norton wow david that was so so good i cannot wait Mm -hmm. until we hear the second part of their story next week um so so good Um, If you guys wouldn't mind, go over to iTunes and rate and review us. We, um, well, one thing, we become more visible when you do that, but Mm -hmm. also we love to hear from you guys um, how this podcast has impacted you and um, how God is working in your life. You can also email us at hello at nothingiswasted.com. And if you aren't following us yet on Instagram, you should head over there to Nothing Is Wasted Ministries. We have um, a lot of fun things going on that you don't want to miss. Yeah. And as always, we want to thank Sleeping at Last for providing the music for the Nothing is Wasted podcast. Download his music anywhere you can download or stream music. And Mel, you got to listen to this clip from our part two of the interview with Chris and Emily Norton before you sign off here. Before we moved to Michigan to do training for the walk, I started noticing a little bit, like having like just weird thoughts and being more tired and like starting to lose myself, mm-hmm. honestly, my passion, my, the care that I had for other people. Um, it was just, it was getting to be so much that I start, stopped feeling 
Uh, and so at the graduation walk and all that was a huge distraction and I buried it down. And like, I am very independent, hate being vulnerable, yeah. hate talking about things. <laughs> I will talk with everyone else about their story. But like, for me, it is extremely hard because I'm so independent. Um, so I, I just buried it down and didn't let it out. Right. So after the graduation walk, it was like this high. And then it was bam, back to reality. Like, what are we going to do now? I was so focused on helping Chris, but now it's like, I'm done with college. I have to do something, all the pressures of the society that puts on you and like myself of what am I going to do? Right. Um, and I, I went down into very, very deep depression where literally I, my thoughts were, I'm never going to be myself again. Like there is no hope. I wanted to be dead. Um, I prayed. The only time I prayed to God was when I prayed for him to take my life. 